Please be aware, if you're Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, you should know that this episode contains the voices and names of deceased persons. Hi, I'm Amy Thomas. I'm a researcher at UTS, and this is Black Stories Matter. In previous episodes of this podcast, we've heard how the Australian mainstream media has failed to connect with Aboriginal communities. It's meant Aboriginal stories have gone unheard, perspectives ignored or misrepresented, and there's been very little accountability for decades. But for Aboriginal journalists deeply embedded in their communities, it's a completely different story. We are held to such a high standard and you will see it on black twitter every single day you know we will get called out if we get shit wrong as we should and that level of accountability allows us to go back to our work and make sure that we are putting out the best story possible for our community because we serve we we don't just serve the public we're serving something deeper than that that's Walpuri woman Rachel Hocking. She started out in journalism at the Koori Mail and has been a reporter and presenter for NITV since 2015. In this episode, we're looking to independent black media to hear what Aboriginal journalists can teach us about the stories we tell around sovereignty and self-determination. Also joining us is Madeline Heyman-Raber, a Gumaroi freelance journalist and media advisor. Mainstream media would never understand because they don't put themselves into a story as we do because we live this stuff. So what role can non-Indigenous people like myself play? How should we be listening to Aboriginal voices? What do we need to do better? All too often mainstream media assumes a white audience and insistently centres whiteness. That's Associate Professor Tanya Dreyer from the University of New South Wales. Tanya's research focus is settler listening. Community-controlled media of this type does absolutely foreground and centre Aboriginal political aspirations incredibly consistently and persistently for anyone who might be interested to listen and consistently decenters that white audience. We as a white audiences are, for the most part, very, very welcome to listen in, to learn, to engage, but we're not the centre of attention and that's really crucial. Rachel, Madeline and Tanya are in conversation with Dr Bhuvan Narayan from the University of Technology, Sydney. And before we begin, I just want to flag that we do mention suicide in this talk. As you can probably hear from the sound quality, this conversation took place online when we were deep in lockdown. But what's discussed is a valuable conversation on how we can start to remap our newsrooms. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome everyone to the third seminar of the Black Stories Matter series titled Aboriginal Self-Determination and Independent Media. My name is Bhuva Narayan. I am an academic in the School of Communication at the University of Technology, Sydney. First, on behalf of UTS and everyone present here, I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the Buru Barangal people of the Darug Nation, the Bidiagal people and the Gamaigal people upon whose ancestral lands our university now stands. We would also like to pay respect to the elders both past and present acknowledging them as the traditional custodians of knowledge for these lands. Today's seminar is the third in a series of four seminars that is supported by the Indigenous Land and Justice Research Hub, the Centre for the Advancement of Indigenous Knowledges, and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at UTS. As a migrant from India, a so-called post-colonial country still dealing with the effects of colonisation, I am extremely honoured and humbled to be asked to facilitate today's seminar. We have three amazing panel members today, Madeline Heyman-Reber, 
Rachel Hawking and Tanya Deher, who I will introduce in detail as we call upon them. The book by Amy Thomas, Heidi Norman, and Andrew Jakubowicz, titled Does the Media Fail Aboriginal Political Aspirations? 45 Years of News Media Reporting of Key Political Moments, published by Aboriginal Studies Press, looks at the history of media in regard to Aboriginal polity. This seminar series takes it forward into a more contemporary state of affairs, taking into consideration digital media, especially in light of the Black Lives Matter movement and its resonance in Australia. Independent Aboriginal media has a long history of telling Aboriginal stories that are rooted in communities and relevant to community needs. How have Aboriginal journalists battled to tell Aboriginal stories in mainstream media organizations? How do we challenge the self-proclaimed impartiality of media that imagines a mainly white audience? How do we confront the question of audience and of listening? These are the questions our panelists will focus on today. To begin, I'd like to introduce our first speaker. Madeline Heyman Raber is a Gomorrah woman and independent Indigenous affairs journalist. Her passion lies in social justice for First Nations Australians through storytelling. In 2019, Madeline worked with freelance journalist Sylvia Rowley to expose the criminal records given to Stonal Generation elders simply for being taken. It resulted in the records being expunged in the state of Victoria. For this work, they received a human rights award in the media category, as well as best news or current affairs story at the First Nations Media Awards. Madeline currently co-hosts the Read the Room podcast with Osman Faruqi. Welcome, Madeline. Can you talk a little bit about your recent experience as a journalist at NITV and more recently as a freelance journalist? To start off with, though, I'd like to talk back to how I kind of started at NITV. I actually started my career as a cadet journalist straight out of high school for a white organization, which was Fairfax Media. And I was there for maybe three years, I think, did a cadetship and also worked in their digital team. But I ended up leaving that role because I wasn't doing anything of substance. We're telling, you know, white stories all the time. Um, It was very commercial. I hated commercial media. Um, So I actually left and started working at Deadly Vibe magazine, which was run by um, a man named Gavin Jones. And he um, had that organization going for about 25 years. He had um, the magazine, he had InVibe magazine, which went to prisoners in prison. Um, And he also did communications work kind of for the government. Um, When Tony Abbott came to be Prime Minister, he ended up cutting the budget, as we know, to Indigenous Affairs pretty significantly. And as a result, he cut the funding to Deadly Vibe after 25 years. And Gavin, unfortunately, took his life. So that was at the end of my employment. So I just thought I'm not going to do anything unless it's something that helps my mob. Um, I can't go back to working in commercial news. I didn't know where to go or what I could do except for NITV. We do have, you know, other like the Crew Mail and those kinds of print media, but in terms of TV and on screen, we don't have representation in a lot of our media organisations. So that's why I decided to, you know, apply for a job at NITV and I was lucky enough to be there for nearly four years. Black media is so important because there's issues like, I'm going to use Anitanya Day's inquest as an example. We were there every single day of that inquest for three weeks. Uh, I was Victorian correspondent at the time. Um, And so we were able to like really tell the story from start to finish. We know all of the details, like we were able to get even the smallest message out that the other networks would have missed. And being a black journalist, being able to do that, you're identifying the things that are 
actually issues. Like I loved doing that work and it's really intense work. And there's been times where I've come out of a story and just like, you don't really know what else to do except for tell someone's story after hearing a really traumatic event. That's like something that I think mainstream media would never understand because they don't put as much of themselves into a story as we do, because we live this stuff too. Like we go home to our families and we have the same things happening. So I, I think after a while, being able to do that kind of work in the community is really important, but working for a larger organization like SBS can be a bit of a struggle sometimes, especially when you have to, you know, get permissions to do a lot of things from a corporate level when you need to be doing stuff from a community level as well. So I guess in the end, that's kind of why I decided to leave and to become a freelancer because um, I'm also telling our stories from the outside for mainstream media now, rather than telling them for a black audience, which is what NITV essentially does. NITV gave me the platform to be able to build myself up to be respected by mainstream media. And now that I can leave and tell stories through mainstream media for a bigger audience, that's like my aim as a journalist. I think journalism for black fellows is sort of a way of activism as well, because we're telling our stories in a way that only we can tell them. Thank you, Madeline. So you talked about your shift from NITV to becoming a freelance journalist. Uh, apart from the different audience that you now have, uh, has it also changed the independence or the freedom that you have to report the things you want to report? Yeah, for sure. I think um, having being able to build such strong connections with community through my job like not only just because I'm black, but through my job is good because a lot of the time I can help families who are struggling with media requests and things like that. They can come to me now and I can give them advice on how to deal with them or even get their story and pitch something to somewhere to be able to tell their story in the way that it should be told if they're worried about it being told in the wrong way. Can you share your experience reporting on convictions for members of Stolen Generations and how you achieve change through this reporting. We had a journalist come to us with the story, basically. So she found it, um, Sylvia Rowley, sorry, um, jointly won the award with. So she yeah. found this in the first place and she brought it to us. She's English. So she just wanted to make sure that black media told the story, basically. Um, but she worked on it with us. She's a journalist too, but she was working alongside Uncle Larry Walsh and she accidentally discovered this, that he had a criminal record. So she came to us and we figured out in Victoria this happened to so many people. And the initial story that she did got picked up by a Greens member, Nina Springle, and she put it before Parliament and they ended up talking about it. So we did a second story to keep the pressure on. Um, and we went and we talked to several other elders who were in the same position. And it turns out that this didn't actually just happen in Victoria. It's happened in New South Wales and other states as well. Because when the states were kind of established, they would borrow each other's law. These happened up until I think it was 1992. And so it's affected, I guess, a lot of people's lives in the sense that we had one elder that I spoke to and she had been in Parramatta Girls Home and she had a criminal record for being taken and put in the home. And when she snuck out as a teenager or anything like that, when she had a police contact, they would record those as criminal records. When she got caught, when she was like 16 or something for having a very small amount of marijuana with her, she actually went to prison, which because she had these previous convictions, including the criminal record for being taken. 
Thank you so much. That was such a powerful uh, story and introduction. Thank you very much. Now I'd like to introduce Rachel Hawking. Rachel is a Walpiri woman with roots in the Tanami Desert of the Northern Territory. She has been a reporter and presenter for NITV since 2015 and currently co-hosts its flagship uh, show, The Point. In 2019, Rachel joined the board for the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma in Asia Pacific, where she advocates for better trauma-informed reporting in Indigenous communities. Rachel is an intersectional feminist who is passionate about Aboriginal women's rights, language revival, and climate justice. Uh, welcome, Rachel. Can you reflect on the recent SBS debates about diversity in the workplace and perhaps how that affects choices made in SBS reporting? Yeah, thank you, Bhuva. And um, it's nice to be on a panel again with my sis, Maddie. Before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking from Camaragal country in Sydney's north. Uh, I pay my respects to elders past and present. And I also pay respects to all the mobs you're probably listening to this yarn from right across this country. If there's anyone in the NT, shout out because I'm very homesick right now. My country is Walpri country, like Ruva said, in the town of my desert. And one thing that I also wanted to acknowledge is while we're speaking from Gadigal land, Camaragal country, Eora Nation here in Sydney, we've been reflecting recently in my work on the fact that it's 250 years since Captain Cook sailed into Botany Bay that followed the invasion that followed. So if anyone is listening and they're a traditional owner, my deepest respects to you today. I have to shout out to independent black media. I started out at the Curry Mail as a freelancer in Melbourne. I think a lot of us did. A lot of us started off as stringers for various black media or we started off in Aboriginal radio, which has been massive in this country since the 60s and 70s. Places like Karma in the central desert of Australia started by Frida Glynn. You've got Torres Strait Islander Radio. We've got Noongar Radio, Galari Media up in Broome, got Kuru Mail in Lismore, and um, even magazines that are now defunct like Tracker. I don't know if anyone listening ever read Tracker, but it was some of the best journalism in this country, edited by Amy Maguire and Chris Graham. And then following Tracker after it was uh, after it lost funding, we had Black Nations Rising, which was this incredible small magazine started by Callum Clayton Dixon and uh, Pakiri Ruska. It really gave a platform to Aboriginal activists in this country who would never get a platform anywhere else. It gave a platform to um, recipes on how to cook with traditional ingredients. It did some really, really great reporting on stuff that was happening in land rights struggles right across the country. To all black media, independent media, I stand on your shoulders. It's because of you that I'm able to have the job that I do and able to do what I do. NITV wouldn't exist without the hard work of all of our community media. So um, people probably have heard of what's happened at SBS in the past couple months. I'll give a tiny bit of background just for anyone who hasn't. Basically, we had a reckoning with our own situation in the media landscape, which was very surprising to a lot of people because SBS is the multicultural broadcaster and NITV is the Indigenous broadcaster. But I think it's important to note from the get-go that just because we are multicultural and Indigenous doesn't mean that we're immune to all the other issues that happen in newsrooms right across this country. I don't think there is probably a newsroom, a mainstream newsroom in this country where racism doesn't exist. 
And so what we saw was a very brave, brave call out from a woman called Cody Bedford on Twitter, who started a Twitter thread about her experiences as a cadet in around 2007, 2008. And that created a domino effect right across the media. We saw people coming up with their own experiences at SBS and other media organisations almost daily after that. And they were awful, but they weren't shocking because I think we cannot be surprised by the fact that racism happens in every single newsroom in this country when we look at what newsrooms are built on um, in this nation. And so following that, we had this call out by Cody Bedford. We also saw this photo, which is now infamous, which circulated Twitter, showing the all-white executive at SBS. Uh, I think a lot of people weren't aware that the heads of every single department at SBS at the time were white and that this shouldn't happen at a place which is meant to represent 64 different languages, meant to represent our First Nations peoples right across the country. And so uh, I think it was a wake-up call that really should have happened a long time ago. And a lot of us internally remember reflecting at the time that we weren't surprised by what we were reading and seeing, but we had to think and question why it had taken this long to come out. Now, we know that the reckoning we've seen at SBS has been an example of similar reckonings happening in industries right across the world because of what's been happening with Black Lives Matter. We've seen fashion industry come to terms with their racism. We've seen racist product names finally changed after being called out for decades. We're seeing um, a reckoning happening in the NBA right now, you know, like this is where we're seeing so much happen as a result of the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement that it was definitely bound to hit the media in Australia. And following on from what we've heard at SBS, we've now got this public report which actually lays out exactly how white Australian media is. And so I think all of these things combined have made it a really interesting time to be a person of colour, to be a First Nations woman at NITV. And it's allowed us to actually have a platform to voice a lot of what our concerns are and then what we think needs to change. So we're finally seeing a change to the executive. Two brown women have been promoted, including Tanya Denning-Orman, NITV's channel manager. For the first time ever, we've got a representative from NITV in the SBS executive, and I think that's, that's a good thing. We're also seeing conversations about how complaints are handled internally and what we do when someone actually calls out racism in the workplace because the people who came up with these accusations didn't stay silent on them at the time. They actually voiced them. And so what happened? What missed? Like who was not paying attention and who was not doing their job and looking after especially young reporters coming through the system? There's a lot of work being done behind the scenes and I think like any organisation any industry that's having mass change at the moment, we're actually not going to know what the results are and how productive it is or what it's going to look like for the next generation for years to come. Because structural change that happens as a result of systemic racism takes time. And that's the thing we have to be willing to do now is take time to put in these changes. We just hope that we're being listened to and um, we hope that the right steps are being taken. That's just a bit of background on what's been happening at SBS. The fact is, is that what it's actually shone a light on for a lot of us is why we need diverse newsrooms. What a diverse newsroom offers the public debate that happens in this country. 
And I think there's a number of reasons. Maddie touched on, I think, the most important when she was speaking, and that's the trust that you build with a community. So when Maddie covered the coronial inquest into Tanya Day's death in custody, she had access to the family because they trusted her. They were willing to give her information about what was going on because they knew and they trusted that it would be reported accurately and that they wouldn't be taken advantage of. And um, if anyone knows anything about media in Australia, you know that there's a big distrust in our communities for media. We've seen enough examples of how bad reporting can lead to bad policy. And if you don't know the history of the Northern Territory intervention and the media campaign that happened to lead to it, I, I think you should go and read about it. I won't spend my time talking about it here because I'll chew up all the minutes that I have left. But we know that bad reporting can lead to bad policy, which can adversely affect the lives of First Nations peoples in this country. I mean, beyond that, like having a diverse newsroom if you want to talk in monetary terms, like it's actually financially better for you because you're going to reach a bigger audience. You're going to reach more people in communities um, that feel like they're being represented on your screens. At NITV, we obviously represent a whole bunch of different nations from across the country. So um, if SBS is doing a story, a First Nations story, then they can come to us and ask for advice about how do you pronounce this tribe name? How do you say this place name? If somebody has died, what is the cultural protocol here? What are the steps to make sure that we sensitively report on this community's plight? And um, if you do do that, if you do report sensitively, if you do get it right, you're going to be trusted by that community to come back and tell stories again. One, one thing I'll mention just on the trust thing, because I think it's so important to make sure that People understand the difference between like being a black journalist, being a black woman and actually reporting on Indigenous affairs. The level of trust from community informs your reporting. It allows you to get that access. It allows you to tell stories accurately and sensitively. But beyond that, there's a level of accountability that is not taught in journalism schools. We are held to such a high standard and you will see it on black Twitter every single day. You know, we will get called out if we get shit wrong, as we should. And that level of accountability allows us to go back to our work and make sure that we are putting out the best story possible for our community. Because we don't just serve the public, we're serving something deeper than that. I think a lot of non-Indigenous journalists could learn from that. The importance of making sure that you do go back to community sometimes and you let them look at parts of your story or you ask them how they want to be referred to rather than just, you know, assuming. There's so much assumption that goes on in mainstream media and I don't think that we should fall back on these old tenets of journalism that impartiality is the only way to get a good story. We have to remember that the rules of journalism in this country were written by old white men. Style guides were written by old white men. Style guides up until recently didn't capitalise Indigenous and Aboriginal let alone allowing for the nuance in spelling different tribe names. So there's a lot to unpack. Thank you so much, Rachel. You mentioned Cody's tweet before. Going on from that, what is the tension between a person working in an organization and then them being on social media? Are there any sort of things they are able to do or are not able to do because they belong to an ITV? And what kind of questions does that raise about your freedom as a journalist on, let's say, social media, and then your reporting as a journalist for an organization? Uh, that's a really good question. 
pretty much every newsroom in this country would have a social media policy mm. and that will tell you what you can and can't do within your contract. And we've seen a very high-profile example of that at SBS mm -hmm. a number of years ago. I think it was 2015 when I started mm -hmm. actually mm. um, with a man called Scott McIntyre who was ultimately sacked following a tweet he made on Anzac Day. Now, these are very real concerns that we have working in the media and how much of our opinion or how much of our truth that we're allowed to put out on social mm -hmm. media. Um, you have to find a, a balance, mm -hmm. I think. So working within a taxpayer-funded public broadcaster, we have to follow a charter. And at the end of the day, a tweet that we put out there could adversely affect our colleagues and our ability to stay as independent as we can be. And so I, I, find it, I find it tricky myself. I'm not a very vocal person on social media. I'll usually um, share yarns and I'll share the voices of the people I'm interviewing. I know that I would have more freedom to speak my opinions if I wasn't working for a public broadcaster. So in the book that we referred to before, they found uh, that Kuri Mail's reporting was much more willing to get into the intricacies of Aboriginal political debate and reform. For example, their coverage of the apology discussed reparations and compensation, a question largely left out of consideration in the mainstream media. Uh, how has your experience telling stories in directly Aboriginal controlled organisation fed into your approach at NITV now? How can the media tell stories that accurately reflect Aboriginal experience and aspirations? That's a yeah. big question, I know. It's, it's a huge question. <laughs> I, mean, look, I wrote for the Korea Mail and, um, and you do have that level of freedom there. I will say that um, NITV didn't exist when we had the apology. If it had been around, we would have seen reporting on reparations and calls for compensation, which we report on regularly every anniversary. I think because NITV is made up of majority Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander journalists, we uh, have, like I said before, this accountability from our communities to report on the nuance and the depth that comes with our stories, uh, that comes with a land rights yarn, that comes with a climate justice story, that comes with deaths in custody. And um, it's on all of us to bring back the feedback we get from our communities to our editors and to relay what their concerns are, whether it's concerns with our reporting or concerns with how we should be reporting. And so what we have at NITV is robust debate and robust discussion from journalists about how a story should be covered. And we're able to have that pretty openly because we're blackfellas and we're pretty honest with each other. And, um, and like I said, if, if something ever does slip by us or something is reported incorrectly or not to the standard that our community expects, we will hear about it very, very quickly. Um, I think we still can learn so, so much, though, from independent media, that we can still learn so much about the integrity of black media and how there isn't a level of fear. They don't have to worry about whether their funding will be cut because of a story, or some media do. But for the most part, that independence allows you to publish opinion pieces from really brave activists in our communities who don't get platforms on you know, Sky News, you don't get platforms on Channel 9. And um, I think NITV is constantly learning and constantly getting that feedback from community. But uh, there's a level of freedom that you get in independent media that we just won't have. Thank you. You just mentioned the editorial room. Can I ask you for an example, if you are able to share it, about how the editorial discussions changed 
uh, your approach to a story or how the community involvement changed your approach to a story? I think the best example I can think of is just ones where we've been personally close. And so mm -hmm. when we have reporters um, covering stories from communities that they're actually from, we have to have discussions about that. The idea around impartiality, we just don't really have the same um, opinion of at places like NITV because we know intrinsically as black people that we're going to be affected by the story in some way. When I started reporting on the shooting of Kumajay Walker last year, we had to have discussions about the fact that I'm a Walpuri woman and that I have family in Yundamu and what my proximity to that story might mean for the coverage of it or what it might mean about how other people interpret our coverage, which is important as well. But at the end of the day, our discussions ended up being, well, this community trusts me and I was getting the calls to put the stories out there. They wanted me to be looking over the interviews to make sure that cultural protocol was respected, that we weren't naming the deceased, that we were listening to elders' voices first. All of these things that come with being a part of community and which you're able to pass back to your newsroom directly. So that's just one example and I think it happens quite a lot because we've got quite a few reporters from all over the country. We're bound to be covering something that's happening where we're from. That's a very powerful example. Um, now I'd like to introduce Tanya Dreher, our next speaker. Dr. Tanya Dreher is an associate professor at UNSW. She is an ARC Future Fellow, Scientia Fellow, and associate professor in media at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Tanya's research focuses on the politics of listening in the context of media and multiculturalism. Indigenous sovereignties, feminisms, and anti-racism. Tanya is interested in listening across difference and the politics of recognition in listening for media justice. Welcome, Tanya. May I ask you to discuss how non-Aboriginal people listen to and engage with Aboriginal stories and voices? Absolutely. Thank you, uh, Bhuva, and thanks for the opportunity to, to be a part of this panel. It's um, an enormous honour and, um, and humbling also, particularly humbling to follow Rachel and Madeline. So I'm thrilled to be here. I'll of course uh, acknowledge country. And so I'm today working on Darawal country, about 80 kilometres south of Sydney. And I'm here as an uninvited settler on Darawal country um, where sovereignty was never ceded, but this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And I'm going to offer a few thoughts, I guess, as a settler researcher rather than a, a First Nations media producer. So um, I hope I can contribute a, a few thoughts that are useful for the conversation. Just before talking about the question of non-Indigenous or, or settler listening, which is my main focus and what I'd most like to talk about, I did just want to acknowledge what I see as the really important key contributions of the book, which has kind of you know, prompted this series of webinars, because I think certainly in terms of media and communications research and debates in Australia, I think it's, it's an incredibly important contribution and it's worth thinking about what, what those key points are. And the, the book focuses on the, uh, you know, the key question, does the media, the mainstream media, does it fail Aboriginal political aspirations? And I think even just focusing our attention through that lens, through the idea of Aboriginal political aspiration, is incredibly important 
because we're probably more used to conversations which focus on stereotyping, racist representation, misrepresentation and the like, which is incredibly important. They're, they're important debates and critiques to have. But framing the research and then our conversation through this idea of Aboriginal political aspiration really quickly and immediately aligns us with really long-standing thinking around sovereignty, around self-determination, around community-controlled organisations and interventions and programs in a way in which some of the other conversations don't maybe so quickly and readily and forcefully take us there. So I think it's incredibly important. And I think it's also really important for giving us a really, really clear cut through framing of how and why it is that over 45 years that the book covers, the mainstream media does predominantly fail to represent or value Aboriginal political aspirations. And two of the really key points, and we've heard already about these, but so important to put this also in the, in the research context, is that all too often mainstream media assumes a white audience and adopts a white standpoint. And I think putting it really simply like that, and again, framing in terms of, you know, a media that consistently centres whiteness is really important for the sorts of conversations that we can have. Um, so I think about the, you know, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. I think also where the Christchurch massacre is briefly in the news. There are two moments, really rare moments in Australian media culture, where the idea of white supremacy, the centering of whiteness, the valuing of white lives and perspectives over others has been very briefly mentioned, you know, something we could talk about in Australian media culture. You know, it's very hard to keep the conversation going. I think that those sort of key points and, and framing the issues in that way is really, really powerful. And I'd also really like to thank Rachel and, and, and also really underscore the point then in this context about the incredible importance of First Nations media, but particularly, I guess, from my interests, the, the long uh, tradition of community broadcasting, which in a sense um, predates the really important developments through NITV and more recently, but here we have a sector, a really important, diverse, vibrant sector, um, in some ways the, the, one of the larger sectors of the Australian uh, media landscape, actually, which is absolutely grounded in those principles around sovereignty and self-determination and has a similar sort of limit, lineage to, say, the Aboriginal legal services or the Aboriginal medical services. You know, here we have, again, a vital model of those community-controlled organisations and what can be contributed there. And it's really clear, as we've seen from the discussion so far, and there are many, many more examples about the way in which community-controlled media of this type does absolutely foreground and centre Aboriginal political aspirations incredibly consistently and persistently for um, anyone who might be interested to listen and very, very consistently decenters that sort of assumed white audience. We as a white audiences are, for the most part, very, very welcome to listen in, to learn, to engage, but we're not the centre of attention. And that's really crucial. So to think about the politics of listening in particular, which is um, something that I've been researching and thinking about for a long time, how do non-Indigenous Australians or, or settlers in so-called Australia 
listen to First Nations media and maybe to First Nations voices more broadly, you know, at the level of, of structure, I think we see a great Australian refusal. And here I'm riffing off the idea, a really well-established idea from um, Stanner's Boyer lectures of the late 1960s of um, characterising Australia through the idea of the great Australian silence. I think when we take seriously, when we really notice that consistent, persistent terrain of First Nations media and First Nations voice, self-determined and consistently foregrounding Aboriginal political aspirations, I don't think just the idea of silence is enough. I think we have to see that there's a really consistent and persistent refusal to listen and to hear if you take into account that context of really consistent media production. That doesn't mean that First Nations media never cuts through. There are definitely really important examples, including in this recent resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, which at first in the Australian mainstream media, as we know, was reported as something over there in the US. That's where they've got, you know, the terrible problems, racism, over-policing, deaths in custody and the like. And it was really First Nations media that was able to push back and foreground the story of, you know, consistent state violence over policing deaths in custody in Australia, that these are absolutely the issues for here. But in the main, I think at the level of a sort of structure, really central actually to the settler colonial project in Australia is a really consistent refusal to listen whether it's the Uluru Statement and claims for voice there, whether Indigenous media. So for my own research, I've done just a little bit of talking to policymakers or decision makers and a few mainstream journalists. Here we find a really interesting dynamic where Indigenous media or particularly community media is valued as a community service. So it's a good thing for Indigenous communities. It's not seen as a news source for white or settler policymakers, decision makers, uh, or something that is an important part of what we might see as the mainstream political or public debate. It's a great thing for community, but that kind of idea about the assumed white stance and white uh, audience of the mainstream persists. And I think that's a, a key sort of structural feature, that refusal to listen. But I do want to mention a couple of just a, a minute or two further a few more hopeful moments and considerations around thinking about non-Indigenous listening, especially in the context of media, where we might see some little chinks in that very established structure of refusing to listen or maybe even resistances at times. Well, one thing is the way in which the idea of listening comes up in conversations around media, racism, self-determination and the like more and more, and also the idea of amplification amplifying First Nations voices. And it is interesting to look at some of the sort of newer entries into the news domain, um, especially those who are kind of online only, newer entrants, which I think we can see as having um, more of an interest than maybe the established legacy media in amplifying First Nations voices, in platforming and amplifying. So here I would think of an example at like perhaps The Guardian Australia, which definitely in terms of the type of commentary and opinion space in particular, 
definitely, you know, demonstrates a consistent commitment to amplifying First Nations voices. And we've seen really interesting developments at now defunct BuzzFeed and other outlets, which are not so much the feature of the research in the book, but I think have demonstrated a slightly different type of commitment and interest when it comes to listening to and really amplifying First Nations voice. There's also an interest driven, I think, in part by the digital media environment and the social media environment in opportunities for non-Indigenous people, for um, settlers in Australia to listen in or what I've sometimes called eavesdropping with permission in social media spaces especially. So for an example here, we might think about Indigenous X, which is, you know, a very well-known rotating Twitter account first established by Luke Pearson and others and quite influential intervention. And we know that for a project like Indigenous X, it has a very significant, actually, non-Indigenous listenership or engagement. But with the focus or the, the means of participation being to listen more than to speak, to pay attention but uh, not necessarily be uh, directly addressed. Um, and also where we have, and again, given um, renewed impetus with the resurgence of Black Lives Matter, we have a sort of resurgence and further development of discussions around solidarity work, allies and allyship work, decolonising or decolonial work. And definitely here we see the idea of listening being discussed and worked through and further developed. So the idea that for settlers or for non-Indigenous people, listening might be a very important part of being an ally or solidarity work, listening as a form of solidarity, in fact. So an example here that I might point to would be Indigenous Health May Day that was um, originally convened by uh, Lenore Gaia, uh, Summer May Finlay and, and Crokey which specifically invited non-Indigenous people to participate by listening. It all happens on Twitter. The Twitter feed is all Indigenous voices. Non-Indigenous people are encouraged to participate by listening and by amplifying, you know, by retweeting. So I think there are some interesting ideas, small-scale interventions, which do give more, more hope but also more texture and idea to what sort of listening practices might be possible and how they might contribute, how listening might work as, I don't think it's the end point, but a contribution to solidarities um, in response to sovereign and self-determined media. Also in that discussion, there's often an interest in listening for accountability and in, in listening as a yielding of authority, a yielding of the central position or the, or the supremacy that we see is so typical of mainstream media. You touched a lot on listening. I want to ask you a question about the other side of listening and the voice. And you mentioned the voice and also the amplification of the voice. Uh, what is the relationship between those, as in who is talking and who's listening, but also what after that? What's the point of listening if you don't take action? And how is this action initiated or instantiated? For example, is it a collective action? And where does it start uh, once I have listened and understood and empathized and want to do something? How do we convert the voice uh, and the listening into either collective action or any other kind of action? You mentioned empathy and, and understanding. 
And I think the listening work that many of us think about and, and work with would be less interested in empathy and more think in terms of some difficult work of unsettling, decentering, moving to the sidelines. Uh, but in terms of the, the relationship to taking action, um, which is, you know, a crucial question and comes up all the time, I think one of the important things that can happen with an orientation to listening more and speaking a bit less, and here I am talking a lot, so I'm totally aware of the irony there, but listening for accountability and also listening for cues, and they are cues to action, but often don't come with a sort of direct question, you know, like, what can I do? What should I do? Um, listening is also an investment of time and attention to learn your place a little bit better. I think if you do respectfully hang around long enough, cues to action will likely emerge. I'll open up to the audience questions. So there's a question for Madeline from Sean. How have you seen publicly funded media be compromised in what they can and can't say and who they can and cannot critique, especially regarding Indigenous policy? Yeah, I think that's a good one. <laughs> um, it's, I guess it's something that I struggled with as a journalist working at a public broadcaster because I am naturally quite opinionated and I, I think not being able to talk about a lot of things is really frustrating for one. But also there is like ways around doing that because when you're working somewhere like NITV, we have access to the community. I want to use, for example, the treaty process that's happening in Victoria at the moment. Um, obviously, every you know media outlet outside of NITV is going directly to the Treaty Commission and they're relaying their narrative of how great the treaty process is going. They don't really have access to the other people in the community because they don't have those connections and haven't built up that rapport with them. And they just don't generally think about talking to people outside of somewhere that's like a legitimate organisation. So there is space to critique things like the treaty process through the way that we report on things um, in terms of talking to the wider community, not just talking to, um, you know, the white legit organisation kind of thing. I think that that can be also a really fine balance because you don't want to upset, you know, our stakeholders. Um, you don't want to upset the government. You don't want us to lose funding over something we've reported. And just in general, being a journalist and not being able to have your own opinion. It's really hard not to critique something that affects you when you just have to remain unbiased. So I think that's um, in terms of silencing from the top, it's a balance between being like, oh, you know, we have to um, put out the message that our stakeholders are giving us, but also we do have to talk to community. And the way that you get around that obviously is reporting it. And I think also the other thing is like when we do put stories out there, well, when we did put stories out there that are completely, you know, unbiased, our audience is all blackfellas, so they kind of do the work for you because they will say what they want to say in the comment section. Um, they'll make it into a big deal and they'll use social media and things to do that. So you're saying that the audience is engaging in the discourse with what you put out and therefore they are amplifying or sort of arguing with the message and that is enabled by social media type of interactions? 
Yeah, for sure. Because when mob latch onto an issue, they will talk about it until something changes. And I think that's the same with reporting for somewhere like NITV. You're writing a story, you put it up, you talk to people, but you already know what mob are going to think and what they're going to say about it. It's good in a way because having NITV writing a story about something legitimizes that issue. And then mob can use that story or whatever and continue the narrative online um, to make people take notice. Question for Rachel from Ashore. You mentioned the intervention in the Northern Territory and the media's role in the development of uh, this policy. However, the legacy aspects of this policy in many remote communities have not been reported to the same degree. Why do you think mainstream media do not report on these issues on the ground? Great question. Uh, I think mainstream media avoid accurately reporting on the impact of the anti-intervention on the ground because it doesn't suit their agenda. Mm -hmm. I think uh, that if the anti-intervention was accurately reported on, then mainstream breakfast panels wouldn't have two legs to stand on when they incorrectly report on the removal of Aboriginal children, when Mm -hmm. they incorrectly report on rates of family violence in our communities and the causes of it. I think that they wouldn't be able to produce the shock shock journalism they do because they would have journalists out there actually giving them the more nuanced version of what is happening. But there is good reporting on what has been happening for the last 13 years. In June was the 13th anniversary of the anti-intervention introduction and uh, UTS actually hosted an amazing panel with Larissa Brent and she spoke with traditional owners on the ground. This was a Zoom webinar as well. So I actually think that Zoom has allowed us to have more access to people who normally wouldn't be invited to these sorts of panels, wouldn't be able to access them because they're not in the capital cities. And so it was really wonderful. I sat on for, I think it was two hours. We heard traditional owners from right across the Northern Territory talk about what the past 13 years has been like for them. On The Point, the show that I co-host, we reproduced a portion of that panel and we had Larissa Brent on to unpack some of the other ideas that came up. And I think it's really important on everyone to seek out that information, to seek out the panels that are being produced by First Nations peoples on these topics. Mainstream media is not going to do that for you. Mm -hmm. We are seeing accurate reporting in places like The Guardian who continue to report on income quarantining, to report on the impacts of poor housing as a result of poor maintenance from government. So there, there is a level of reporting across certain aspects of the media which is solid, which is actually covering the issues that the intervention has brought up for First Nations people. But like you said, I mean, there's a big gap in mainstream media and we have to ask ourselves, does this suit their agenda and the wider picture they're trying to tell about our experiences? The media often focuses on simplistic and negative discourses surrounding Aboriginal politics, for example, focusing on the conflict between Aboriginal groups or focusing on emotion of participants rather than the politics at stake. So the question is, how do these discourses keep getting repeated? For Rachel or Madeline, have you experienced editorial pressure or similar to fit Aboriginal stories into predetermined frames? They just don't kind of think about getting someone else's opinion because to them it's not legitimate if that makes sense it's not coming through an organization they need to take more of a grassroots approach and start speaking to different types of blackfellas like people who have different opinions um, because not every single blackfella feels the same way there's usually at least two sides to one thing that they're discussing I haven't personally 
really experienced editorial pressure to fit stories into predetermined frames, except for when we've had pressure to kind of succumb to our stakeholders, just to not, you know, cause drama, I guess. (laughs) Thank you, Madeline. Rachel, did you have anything to add? Look, I think um, a good example is how we see closing the gap policy reported on every single year. And we basically see politicians regurgitated through all the mainstream channels. And I think that what is lacking is rigorous investigative journalism into policy that affects First Nations people. And I think that what that requires is time and investment. Now, we don't have a lot of that uh, in small black media organisations, even NITV, which is the biggest of black media still lacks a strong investigative team, which has been running for years. We do have one now, which is doing some pretty mad work, actually. But it takes time to actually look at these things and unpack them and move away, like you said, from that superficial reactionary, what he said, what she said, or what Aboriginal groups are fighting about. And I think in order to change that, we need to invest in independent media. There have been recent effort towards having a more slow news, which is probably more conducive to listening. The current environment of sound bites and social media snapshots is increasingly becoming the norm. How will audiences be persuaded to listen to more diverse stories when the payoffs for refusal to do so protect various privilege? I think sometimes you need to tell stories regardless of what audiences want. Um, And I think you have to remember that audiences are diverse and that for the most part, media has only supported or created content for one type of audience. And so part of changing that and part of allowing First Nations voices to have a platform is doing it regardless of what audience ratings are, how many clicks you get on your article. Mm -hmm. Obviously, these things inform how sustainable your organisation can be and um, whether you might get a job. But at the same time, I think that's why public broadcasting exists, right? Like we have taxpayer-funded media so that we can produce content regardless of what our ratings are, even though that does, to an extent, inform what we do at NITV and SBS. I think in terms of Twitter and seeing sound bites on the news every single night, the same sound bites of the same politicians on every single network, it's exhausting. And people probably don't realise that they actually want something different, that they want more nuance and they want to understand issues better. But if you never give them the option, if you never provide that, how are they going to know? Slow news is a great term, by the way. I really like that approach because we've just started delving into slow TV at NITV and allowing people to kind of like ride along with something. I think it's so important to slow down right now. I, I don't think that can be overestimated. I agree with everything Rach said, obviously, but I do think that the sound bites and social media stuff is really important because you can kind of gauge what issues people care about, especially when you're talking about Indigenous affairs. Also, it you know, if you can craft a tweet in a really great way or put something small out there that's like a snippet, people want to learn more. So they will spend the time going and researching an issue. There is that side of things too. Yeah, Black Twitter is like a blessing. And I think... Yeah. If anyone wants to learn more, there's so many people you can just click on and follow right now on Twitter and your world will be expanded. Like you will learn so much every single day. Change your way of thinking too about a lot of things. Tanya, can you expand upon how social media has changed the way we listen, especially because of the time constraints and our attention span? I would definitely underscore what Madeline's just said and and Rachel also, like the gift as well as provocation that is Black Twitter is definitely a new and amazing 
development. So if we think about the broadcast era, which is not that long ago, actually. So the broadcast era was all about, you know, scarcity, scarcity of airtime, of, of spectrum and all the rest. And so, you know, lends itself to a very sort of limited range of voices. Social media, for all its drawbacks, and it, it most definitely is a double-edged sword, but if we see a value in eavesdropping with permission or listening as solidarity. It's absolutely true that Twitter offers opportunities there that are completely different. You know, no longer can we settlers get away with the argument, oh, but, you know, we weren't told, I don't know. I mean, that argument has never held water, but it definitely does not hold water uh, anymore. And in the, the social media landscape, you know, a whole range of those assumptions that are built up in the idea of who's the white audience, what's the white standpoint and everything are very, very quickly dispelled. So the idea that there's one Indigenous opinion or position on anything, you will very quickly be disabused of that. Yes, I think also the, the, the idea of accountability, which again is a very double-edged sword. So I don't, I don't want to completely dismiss the, the quite you know toxic kind of practices and, and atmospheres that can also develop on, on social media in extremely intense and in, in quite public ways. But in terms of being able to sort of be held accountable, it's also a space in which some various ideas around accountability. And so I've heard Rachel and, and, and Madeline talk about how, you know, they're, they're constantly accountable to community and that's very important. That's if it's sometimes hard. I think it is also a space where settlers might get a glimpse of what it is to be accountable to First Nations people and communities and, and organisations. And I think to work in a mode of accountability is a big shift and an important one. Thank you so much. One final question before we wrap up now. So is it um, possible for mainstream media? How can we get mainstream media to report stories from an Indigenous uh, Aboriginal standpoint? Is it only possible through Indigenous controlled media? And how can we uh, make that shift? Definitely, I think community controlled media is the best way to tell stories. However, I think mainstream media can do way better. Every single newsroom in the country needs to have at least one Black journalist on their team and also allowing that person to have editorial control over Indigenous affairs. And that's not saying, you know, they can go rogue, but Blackfellas know what's best and we don't need to be constrained by very white editorial guidelines that are, you know, as Rach said earlier, written by old white men. And I think that until that changes, we're not going to see too much of an actual change in the way things are reported because other journalists don't have that connection to community, something they'll never have or the lived experience that Blackfellas do. Rachel, did you want to add something to that? I think it's possible for mainstream media to report stories from Indigenous perspectives, like Maddie said, when you actually have diversity in your newsrooms, but um, to actually do it from a standpoint of First Nations integrity, I think is only done through independent black media because these organisations have all black boards that respond to their communities, which design their charters and their policy based on First Nations values and I think that what we need to focus on if we're going to look at changing the way mainstream media reports on us is a reckoning behind the scenes in their boardrooms, in their executives. We're never going to have all First Nations. We're probably never going to have a majority First Nations representation in editorial positions in mainstream media. But 
we can start to have an influence and have those people there to actually say, hang on a second, that all white panel that just reported on the removal of First Nations kids was flawed. And it's not just flawed, it was factually incorrect. It was fake news. And we should not stand for that. We shouldn't encourage that. So I think we can definitely change the way we're being reported on right now. But I, I, like I said earlier, I think the best way to encourage rigorous journalism on our communities is to invest in independent black media. That was Rachel Hocking from NITV finishing up our conversation. And I know she's given me a pretty good idea of one thing we can do to show that black stories matter. Support Aboriginal media and Aboriginal journalists. If you found any of this content distressing and feel like you need to talk to someone about it, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. You can also reach out through their website. Next time, on the fourth episode of Black Stories Matter, we move to the inside of mainstream media newsrooms, where leading Aboriginal journalists work to tell black stories better than before. Every community's got local people that are working really hard to make positive change. We really wanted to get those stories across and to provide the the context around the history or the past policies, wherever that was appropriate to um, foster that understanding as well and focus on, you know, why things are happening, not just what's happening, but looking under the surface. That was Gamilaroi woman Ella Archibald Binge, Indigenous Affairs reporter at the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Ella will be in conversation with Lorena Allen, a descendant from the Gamilaroi and Yuwala Nations and the Guardian's Indigenous Affairs editor, and Dr Anne-Marie Payne from the University of Technology's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. I hope you can join us then. I'm Amy Thomas, and thanks for listening to Black Stories Matter. Black Stories Matter is a UTS podcast made by Impact Studios at the University of Technology, Sydney, an audio production house funded by the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research. The production team live on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose lands were never ceded. This audio series is based on the book, Does the Media Fail? Aboriginal Political Aspirations by Amy Thomas, Heidi Norman and Andrew Yakubovich. You can buy a copy from any good bookstore or order it online at the IATSIS shop. Just go to shop.iatsis, that's A-I-A-T-S-I-S dot gov dot A-U. The book is published by Aboriginal Studies Press at the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. The Black Stories Matter podcast was made with the support of Aboriginal Affairs New South Wales as part of a strategy to improve the dynamics between Aboriginal people and governments.